our show today too. What's up, MMA world? This is Rafael Garcia back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast, and I am here with Schwan Humes once again. How are you doing, good sir? Uh, not bad at all. Thank you for asking. How about you? You get it, get a chance to uh, rest a little bit, or you just been going as usual? Oh uh, man, well I had a pretty um, did a couple things this past weekend to celebrate the birthday. So it was, it was but it was low key though. It was definitely um low key. We took yeah, a, a trip. Sometimes yeah. it's good to be low key. Hey man, that's the way you gotta be once you start getting old, yo. Everything starts hurting you. You don't recover quite as much as you used to back in the day. But everything's good, man. Just kind of keeping it low key. That's the whole plan. Hey, but you got one. You'd be surprised when people walk around without a plan. Grown adults with no plan whatsoever. That's almost every day, man. I, I trust me. I see it every day at work. So you you don't have to even uh, convince me of that. I see it every day at work. So let's see, let's see, man. We got quite a bit to talk about tonight. Um, We're going to be doing an hour show today, folks, so we appreciate you all for listening to us. But first and foremost, man, let's jump right into the news for this week. And and probably the two biggest topics obviously include two people who actually don't do MMA. On one hand, we have Ronda Rousey, who made her WWE debut, and I do that in air quotes, when she appeared at the Royal Rumble on Sunday. And since then, it's been... Quite an interesting conversation, uh, Shawan. Have you seen any of this information, or have you been following this story at all? I've been following the I've been following kind of the aftermath of her appearance and and like the way the fans took it, how certain media members have taken it, how some of the wrestlers have taken it. That's been the most interesting thing to me, seeing how everybody's response to her taking this next step, I guess, in her career. Everybody's response to it. It's kind of predictable, but it's still interesting to watch it unfold. What were some of your um, initial thoughts? I'll, I'll let you go into what you thought about it first, and then I'm, I'm part because I just actually wrote a piece for this about, excuse me, about this for MMA ratings that'll probably go up tomorrow. But um, what were some of your initial thoughts of what you saw? Well, her doing my my initial thoughts was like, I mean, I don't watch as much pro wrestling as I used to when I was younger. But the thing about it is, my I was kind of concerned with her ability to actually do the work. I know people assume because you're a fighter and you're a trained athlete that um, wrestling is a natural progression, but it's it's an art form and a sport to itself. You can't just there's there's just a lot of nuance in it. It's not just about being a legitimate fighter or a legitimate athlete. There's a certain amount of acting and timing and charisma you have to have, and I wasn't sure that Ronda Rousey necessarily had it to be in that to be in that realm and be successful. I mean, offer her name initially, sure. But actually, her ability to do the things necessary to be successful in it, uh, I have my doubts. Well, there's a lot of different things to kind of take away from this moment. Um, to me, personally, I think the conversation kind of starts with actually what happened after uh, the Royal Rumble. I don't know if you saw, but she did an interview with um, R- Ramona Showburn, which she talked about the transition over to professional wrestling. And Ramona Showburn of ESPN asked her about the two losses, about the most recent, the Nunez loss. And the interesting thing is that Rousey couldn't even talk about it. She looked away from the camera like she was about to break down again, and she just could not talk about it. This is a fight that she lost in, what, 2016, I believe it was? And, um... She seems like like she's still struggling with that, and everyone saw how she responded to um, the Holly Holm fight and the Amanda Nunez fight. So it's well aware that she's not the greatest loser, um, and I hate that I'm not going to use the term loser in like a negative type of fashion. But she's not the greatest when things in the athletic world don't go her way. 
So in that regard, you know, this this is an opportunity for her to kind of continue doing something that she loves because it's always been clear that, that her and her um, teammates over in the Four Horsewomen have, have a strong love for professional wrestling. But there's still some concern that I personally have. And um, what I'm, what I'm going to go to is that you want to initially make the, the comparison between her and, and Brock Lesnar, former UFC champions coming over to pro wrestling. But there's a major difference because if you look at – the big thing is to me is that if you look at the way – they handled their losses and from a psychological standpoint i actually mentioned this in the piece i put up um, on the site today but i want to see what rousey is going to be like when professional wrestling fans get dirty because yeah you know mixed martial arts fans they can be they can be hostile they can boo they can do whatever you want but few fans are as indignant as pro wrestling fans what is she going to respond? How how is she going to respond when fans start chanting like Amanda Nunez when they start chanting Holly Holm? Because they have been known to do that. Even on Tuesday, and when her face was shown, she wasn't at the event on um, SmackDown Live this past Tuesday. But just the the, the mere mention of her name drew booze, which was a stark contrast to what happened on Sunday. So how is she going to respond when people? start chanting Holly Holm at her, start chanting Amanda, Amanda Nunez, or start doing something else along those lines. Is she even going to respond? Hold on one second. I think we have a technical issue. Hold on. So let me get Schwann back in. Sorry about this, folks. But yeah, like that's going to be my biggest concern um, with her. So how is she going to respond when the pro wrestling fans get dirty? Because they're going to at some point in time. I can definitely expect to see them begin chanting against her, begin booing her. The thing uh, and what kind of stands out to me most is that there was a recent storyline where back from, I believe it was at Survivor Series this year, where Brock Lesnar faced off against uh, AJ Styles, who was another professional wrestling and professional wrestler, and one of the shots that someone took at Brock Lesnar was talking about how he gets submitted easily, basically talking about Frank Mir when, when Frank Mir submitted him, and they brought up, you know, Kane Velasquez during his, his pro wrestling run, they brought up the guys who have defeated him, so It'll be interesting to see if Ronda allows for that same type of narrative, because I don't see her being able to to deal with that, and I think that that's going to be a very um, important uh, situation to watch during this transition to pro wrestling. That that's an actually the really good point because, I mean Brock, I, I don't know Brock Lesnar personally, but he seems like from what he said, he's just like a down home country boy. He's a well adjusted guy who who has a clear idea of who he is what he's here for, what he wants to do with his life. And I don't know, growing up in the environment that Ronda Rousey grew up, I don't I don't know if she developed those coping skills and that sort of balance. When you read her book or you read the stories that she had growing up, it just doesn't seem, I'm not, and I'm not saying her mom's a bad parent, it just doesn't seem very balanced. It seems very, it goes from one extreme to the other. So that might explain why she handles losing so badly. And if you get to the point in wrestling where you can't attack certain personal things, but in the context of it, it kind of takes away any of the real weight to her being in there. You know, I mean, that's how you work. You have the mic, the mic skills, and the back four. You build the, you build the, uh, the rivalry up just by taking personal shots and kind of using stuff that happens in the public. And in wrestling, they've known to do that for people's actual personal experiences. 
that everything becomes fair game. If she, if she can't handle that, or worse yet, she reacts badly to it in the ring or takes something out on somebody, that could be just, it'd just be very problematic for the uh, World Wrestling Federation or um, WWE, excuse me, and for Ronda Rousey because she doesn't have a lot of legitimate options for making money right now. Her movie thing isn't really going off. She's not fighting right now. This is kind of a, a get out of jail free card and she really needs to do her best to give her best options to, to succeed in because she does not have a lot of other viable options at this moment. Yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be um, out of, it'll, it'll be interesting to watch because like I, like I said, professional wrestling fans are probably some of the nastiest out of the whole group. Um, if you can turn me down a little bit, Sean, I can hear my echo. But they're the nastiest out of the whole group. And when they take shots, they they come with the heat. So it'll be interesting to see how Rousey responds to that, how the WWE protects her from that, because I don't think that, that she is going to allow, or she's going to do the best she can to control those types of narratives from taking place. Um, is, let me is ask you. Protector, though, is it worth their investment, though? I think it will be. Um, I don't. I don't know if there's going to be the crossover appeal. Uh, the guys on MMA Beat were actually talking about this today. That a lot of professional, or excuse me, a lot of MMA fans are just flat out tired of hearing about Ronda Rousey, and their reaction was to say that they don't want to talk about the story or they don't want the story really discussed. So it would be interesting to see what type of buzz she just does generate from uh, an, an MMA fan standpoint. I think she's going to draw some attention right now and this is a good time for the for the for the wwe to kind of be gathering that attention it'll be interesting it'll be interesting to see if her presence drives subscriptions to the wwe network that's always going to be like one of the bottom lines that and their ratings so we'll see what happens over the next um over the next few months she says she's going to be there full time uh we haven't seen what the ratings were for monday night raw on monday or um, Tuesday Night Smackdown, which was the two nights right after uh, the Royal Rumble. So we'll see. I, I can. Um, they'll probably come out later on this week. But there's going to be a few different talking points to uh, watch closely as we look at this uh, Ronda Rousey story. Yeah, hopefully she spends a lot of time working on her ring craft because you just can't you can't bluff your way through that. <laughs> you you just you just can't. I, I've known a couple of pro wrestlers. I actually went to college with the Undertaker's niece. Um, you can't bluff your way through that. You either can do it or you can't. And just like if you can't fight, you'd be exposed in the cage. If you really can't wrestle, you will be exposed out there. Well, you you said the, uh, a key word, um, bluffing. So let's talk about someone who is bluffing. Uh, I'm sure you saw the video of Floyd Mayweather walking in and walking around this uh, octagon at some gym, looking in, looking emaciated in his shorts with no gloves on or whatever, basically talking about MMA in, in 2018. Um, what was your first reaction to this? My, me personally, I was just like, I didn't even watch it the first few times I saw it on my timeline. I actually just watched it for the first time today. And it's just, down, it's pathetic to me per se. Um, I know what he's trying to do. I know what the UFC is trying to do. If any type of attention that they may get out, out of him, Conor McGregor's talking about, um, He's going to be living in fear if he doesn't fight MMA, which is totally idiotic thing for him to say. But that's what he does. What what, what was your thought when you saw this video of Floyd Mayweather walking around a cage and the response of everyone wanting to, to talk about it? I just I just that my initial thought is the first thought I always have with Floyd is that he is just a master at manipulating people. I mean, he hasn't he hasn't boxed a, a viable opponent 
in years, and he's still considered, he still talks about in boxing all the time. He's never even had a mixed martial arts fight, and I guarantee you that post had more clicks and more comments than anything written by any champion or... Your mic's rubbing up against something, and we can't really hear you. Oh, sorry. I said, basically, I just, I'm just impressed by how amazing he is at manipulating people. I mean, he hasn't really been involved in a legitimate athletic contest in a while, and he's still the biggest name in boxing. He's the biggest name in mixed martial arts, and he's never even competed in the sport. It's just, it's just amazing how he knows how to play, push the right buttons, and play the angles and play the people to keep his name in the in the news, keep himself in front of the camera, and keep people asking questions and coming to him for information and, and inside access. Even though he's not really doing anything except being a promoter, it's just, it's it, it's really impressive if you think about it. So, do you think this is something that we'll actually see? Um that do you do you think we'll ever actually really see him in an, an octagon and if not is this a conversation that we should even be entertaining right now i don't think it's a conversation that should be entertained because just just i don't think i think if floyd was a younger person and he was doing this i could see him doing it just with his mindset his self-belief and his attention to detail and his preparation his understanding of of combat i mean if you if you can apply that apply the focus and the drive he has in boxing and put him to mixed martial arts, I could see him doing it. But the problem is, he's at his he's coming to the tail he's coming to the tail end of his physical prime. He's declining already. And the thing that people keep forgetting about in boxing, he's very well rehearsed. He's very well drilled. He's he just a boxing dictionary. He, that's why he's so good. It's not because he's so fast or he runs from people. It's because he knows boxing in and out. He has an he has an actual technical and strategic answer for everything you do in there. I can't imagine him going into mixed martial arts because. In boxing, even though it's a tough sport and it's a punishing sport, he has all the answers. He's done it so long. He's done it at such a high level. All the answers. It makes martial arts. Even if you want to just keep it standing, he doesn't have all the answers. And even though he's faced world-rated guys in boxing, he hasn't been in an uncomfortable fight. He hasn't been uncomfortable in a fight more than maybe, what, four or five times in, in the entirety of his career. I don't know that he switches over into a totally different skill set. We're just right off the bat, even on the feet, he's going to be in a position of being uncomfortable or discomfort. So I just don't think it's likely. I mean, the money he would make from it, even if he lost, would be huge. I mean, he'd probably sell even more than he did in boxing. I mean, it'd be a huge, if he fought Conor McGregor in mixed martial arts, he'd probably get a bigger payday than he did against Pacquiao in boxing. It would be that big an event, even though everybody knows how it would end. But I just can't, I don't know if his ego and his mindset would allow him to put himself in a situation like that without being able to compete or be at least have a chance of winning. I, I just don't think he's that kind of guy. I know he cares about the money, but he cares about how he looks and how he performs as well. And I think that overshadows anything else as far as earning. I saw something on one of the sites that I write for where they were referencing the idea that um, he's talking to Showtime about fighting MMA. And someone asked a question, would you rather be an undefeated fighter or would you rather be someone who's 50 and one in in with that one being an MMA with an extra uh, 300 million? So I mean, it's really just it's it's just a stupid conversation to me personally because we know he's not going to fight uh, MMA. We know he's not going to step in into the cage to face anyone, and it's just it's it's just a, a continuing distraction. And it's like this is where we've fallen, and it, it kind of helps segue into the next topic that I wanted to talk about, where we talk about the UFC, how it's struggling across the board um, when it comes to stars and ratings here, because right now. 
Um, we just had UFC on Fox 27 last week, and it was the lowest rated uh, UFC event on Big Fox. They had a hundred. Excuse me. They had one million seven hundred one point seven million viewers um, throughout the evening. That was our average, and it continues a trend of those numbers slumping. They've been slumping ever since they they moved to that platform, and this is an all-time low, where they've been dropping by massive percentage points across the board. What does this tell you? Is this like a, should they seriously be concerned about this? I believe they are, but how, how concerned would you be if you saw these numbers continuously declining the way they are? Uh, I mean, they should be concerned just from the point of view that the UFC doesn't have that, just the letters UFC don't doesn't guarantee anything nowadays. I mean, it doesn't guarantee you a certain share. It doesn't guarantee you a certain rating anymore. I mean, it, it guarantees you a certain base rating, but you can no longer expect to do two, three, four million just throwing anybody out there with the letters UFC in front of them. So that should be a concern. And the other concern would be that it takes away any leveraging power they have as far as, like, we're trying to get a new deal. Numbers like this aren't going to get you the money you want to get paid. It's not going to have multiple platforms fighting to get your product on TV because your product's being shown as something that that really doesn't do a lot of ratings unless it's the biggest names and the biggest stars, which you don't have very many of. So it it, it, sh it is a reason for concern. I mean, if they just want to get by, skate by, and make, make, make a profit, then it's fine. But the fact of the matter is they want to make up all the money they, they lost in, in purchasing the UFC, and they're not going to do that with ratings like this. And that this this sort of thing doesn't help build interest for their pay-per-views, and it doesn't help build interest for their superstars because they've got so many events with so many fighters. And part of building up those big pay-per-views is when you have events that are you're doing fight nights and you're doing three or four million people. That helps build the anticipation because you're like, if people are this excited for a run-of-the-mill fight, what, what are they going to do for the pay-per-view? But in this in a situation like this, it makes you wonder. It actually slows momentum, I think, and it gets people used to low numbers. It gets people used to seeing a lot of fights, and it gets people used to not being excited for fights. So when you need to draw that excitement and create that excitement, it's even hard. It's an uphill battle, and it's even harder now because people are just so accustomed to seeing mixed martial arts fight. Yeah, you said so, you said that you know the name itself isn't enough anymore, and I definitely agree with that. Uh, it's not. People aren't just sitting around asking what UFC fight is on, or or taking or taking time out of their busy weekends just to sit and watch the show um, anymore. So I definitely agree with you from that standpoint. That's a definite fair assessment there. If you were uh, in charge and basically running the uh, Fox platform, running the matchmaking sense of the um, of the USC, how would you better leverage that Fox platform? Because I think that there's a lot of space there that they are missing out on when it comes to how that uh, how that platform is being used from a from a brand standpoint. What would you do differently if if you were um, the decision maker? It's really hard to say because with the way they had the deal set up, Fox wanted them so they could fill all this empty space with content. So that in, a, in a sense, the UFC has become its own worst enemies because now they have to have a fight night every, you know, every week and have some kind of event. They have to have something on almost every week, which takes away from the impact of their their flat, their tentpole events. Me personally, I would just think, if nothing else, just either shorten the cards. Some of these cards do not need to be so long. And I know that would affect their deal with Fox. But I mean, part of the reason is you have these four or five hour long cards and it's and they're not very interesting matchups. They're not very enticing matchups because of injuries or because guys just have been fighting too much and, and need time off. 
you either need to shorten the cards or you need to cut down the amount of events they have at least by half. Maybe have one pay-per-view a month and have like two or three fight nights or if you're going to do if you're going to have two pay-per-views then just only have one or two fight nights. It's just too much exposure, but that's the nature of the contract. So it's really hard to come up with an answer when part of the reason they're being brought in is to fill up the open spaces between sporting events, college events or pro events. It, it kind of defeats the purpose to lessen the time of the cards and it defeats the purpose to lessen the amount of cards because that's what Fox brought them in for for more for, for more content. I would be interested in seeing what point this like how them working on a new deal is going to impact um, Fight Pass because I think that there's opportunity that's not really being leveraged. It's funny I'm actually using Fight Pass using Fight Pass before we got on the call today because I was just doing some um some research on uh, some past fights, but it's, this is a platform that isn't properly leveraged, in my opinion. And it'll be interesting to see if these um, negotiations have any impact on them better leveraging that. Are they going to go back to putting live events on that um, on, on on that platform or doing thing along those lines? It'll be interesting to uh, see in the future. Yeah, I mean they've got to come up with some kind of new idea, but it doesn't seem like like I said before, the UFC doesn't seem very interested in being new or creative past a certain point and that that's the problem they keep on approaching the problem in the same manner and it's not working but nobody seems to want to put the money in or take the temporary losses long enough to enact or engage in a new plan or a new system because if you every time you know every time you switch over to a new system you do something different you're going to take a couple steps backwards and it seems like they don't want to take any steps backwards they want to go from here all the way to the stars and that's just not how it works. You have to take some steps backwards and adjust to the problems being presented to you, not just ignore them and think you can fix them without taking a half step back or two or three steps back. It's just not, that's not the way it works in business, but they seem to be determined to make it work that way. Yeah, I definitely think that you're, you're right about that too, because like, for example, um, whenever we talk about combat sports and streaming services, the WWE network really kind of gets the the goal is considered the gold standard because of how well it's been working as of late, but it, that wasn't always the case. Even still to this day, you know, they're cutting content that they were originally putting on the network just to kind of save from a budgetary standpoint. So yeah, you're right. When you do make the change over to such a major platform, it does impact. And, and we saw, we even saw that when it comes to the Floyd Mayweather, Conor McGregor boxing matchup, where they ended up having to give people a bunch of refunds because the platform crashed. So yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. Um, and as we talk about the ratings that we see on uh, Fox, let's talk about UFC on Fox 27, where we had Jacare finishing off uh, Derek Brunson via knockout in the first round again. This is the second time that we saw that type of finish between these two men. What were some of the things that you saw in this fight here? And, and always, and as always, you know, I like to ask, what would you do with both the winner and the loser in this situation? Um, I, I'm just, I'm not even surprised, man. I mean, Derek, Derek Brunson is a really good athlete. I, I, he's a legitimate wrestler. He's got, he's dirt. He's tough. He's fast. He's explosive. He's got. He seems to have all the physical tools. Not really the durability per se. But he's not. He's not easy to knock out. He's been knocked out before, but he's not easy to knock out. But the dude, he's just missing cage IQ. That's that's all this to it. He does not know. He doesn't know how to do the when to do things, when not to do things, and he has has no ability to be creative within the context of a fight. I mean, 
this fight was kind of like the Robert Whittaker fight, and it was kind of like the fight before when he faced Jacare the first time. The, same, it's, the only difference is that the counter shot that Jacare knocked him out with the first time did knock him out in the rematch. But Jacare was landing it repeatedly, time after time after time after time. And it's weird to me that seven years later, or maybe six years later after you fight somebody, you still have the same technical holes that you had when you fought them in like your first or sec your second, maybe third year of professional fighting. It shows like a total lack of evolution, a total lack of discipline, a total lack of technical awareness. I mean, he's, he almost looks like the same guy. He still reaches with his punches, his chin still comes up. His, he still can't decide between sitting back and countering or intelligently pressuring. He doesn't know how to intelligently pressure. He doesn't, he doesn't know how to walk that balance between aggression and discipline, between being offensive and being defensively responsible. And everything he does just opens him up that much more to expose his defense and his lack of technical acumen. And he just got he just got dominated. He was never really in this fight from the minute they they clicked the bell to go. The minute he got knocked out, he, he was just never into it. He could never put combinations together. He couldn't pressure Jacare effectively. He couldn't get away from Jacare's strikes effectively. He couldn't clinch him. He couldn't tie him up. He just couldn't do anything. And it's, it's really, it's kind of, it's just kind of disappointing that a guy with his physical tools has improved so little. He's basically like a smaller version of Ovink St. Prue. And once again, it's proof that if you're winning fights, that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting better. Because Derek Brunson was at one point a legitimate top 10 middleweight. So he had to win fights along the way. But the fact of the matter is he hadn't gotten any better. He was getting by on athleticism. He was getting by on grit. He was getting by on aggression. And once those things weren't able to turn fights in, in the fights with the elite guys, that's when he gets exposed. He knocks out Dan Kelly, knocks out a faded Leota Machida. He's beating up on Uriah Hall, who's hit or miss all the time. He's beating up all these second and third tier guys. The minute he faces a, a tier one fighter, he gets exposed every single time. He just falls apart completely and looks like he doesn't even know what he's doing in there. And that's just, I don't know. I don't know what he can do at this point because at his age, he's been fighting for seven, eight years now. He's already been ranked pretty highly. He's got a name. He's signed to a new contract. What else do you do with him? When you sign into that kind of contract, you can't give him pushovers. You got to match him tough, and he's shown the he's shown the complete inability to adjust in mid-fight or to even fix the holes he's had since day one of his fighting career. So it's like, what do you? I guess at this point he's going to start being used as the guy who you build the smaller names off of, the guys who are coming up. That's essentially the the point he's going to be at. He's going to be a journeyman with a name. Some guys he'll knock off because he's just that dynamic against the truly elite guys, even the ones who are up and coming. He's going to get beat, and he's going to get beat decisively. And they're just going to use him to build up other guys or use him to rehab guys who are coming off of tough losses. That's essentially what Jacare did. Jacare got crushed by Robert Whitaker. People were thinking that might be the end of him. He signs a contract, fights Brunson, and now people are talking about Jacare might be up for a title shot, depending on who wins between Romero and Luke Rockle. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of different conversation points that you brought up there. Um, and I'm going to agree with you where it comes where you talked about him not looking – that great even though he's been winning fights i still think one of my favorite brunson kind of memories is the fight he was having against joel romero he was doing so well in that fight all the way up until like the last like two minutes or so when he just kind of let it get let it um get away from him that could have been like a, a career changing victory and i'm sure he probably thinks about that often i mean that fight still stands out to me 
And if you look at the at, at the at the career trajectory of both men since then, you got Romero about to fight for an interim title again in a few weeks. So it just kind of really shows you where both of those guys are at. Um, and Jacare, I don't, I still don't consider him a. I mean, he's he's one of the best guys in the in the division. I understand that narrative, and I understand him being near the top of the uh, food chain when it comes to that group. I don't know if you consider him a contender for whoever wins out of out of Rockhold and Romero because I'm hearing that Robert Whitaker is actually back in, in in the gym sooner rather than later. So we'll see what happens with him. But I mean, even Chris Weidman is talking about trying to fight one of these two guys coming out. So he's in a position in the division where he can always be a contender just because of the way that contender is kind of not, oh, excuse me, that division is not does not have as much depth as it exactly. as it once had. I mean, he, I mean, Josh Ray, at his age, you just don't know. Like I say with DC, you don't know when he's gonna fall off that cliff and go old overnight. He's already not the athlete he used to be. That margin for error doesn't exist. It, it, the margin for error isn't as wide as it used to be. And as we talked about when TP Grant was on the show, even though he's a good striker and he's an effective one, he's not. Super, he's not super sharp against against a disciplined, measured attack. He doesn't look nearly as dynamic as he does against someone like Brunson. Brunson was the perfect comeback fight for him—a guy who's offensively dangerous, but he's also wild, sloppy, and defensively irresponsible. Sets up perfectly for a guy who's got big power and has a huge advantage on the ground. Really, the only fight place that the fight would have been safe for Brunson is on the feet, because if he has nothing for Jacare on the ground. Unfortunately for Brunson, he lacks all the fundamental and technical skills and awareness necessary to navigate a fight for three rounds, much less one round, against somebody of even, even decent caliber on the feet who has some poise, some self-control, and some discipline. And that, that's essentially what it comes down to. I don't know that Jacare is any better than he was facing when he lost to Whitaker. I really don't know that. He was, he was on a win streak when he faced Whitaker. But the fact of the matter is the division is super thin. They need interesting matchups in a fight like this, a knockout win like he had. It leaves an impression in people's minds that is going to pretty much put him in a position where he could expect a title fight in the next fight or two. I mean, whether they might put him against maybe White. Who else do they have right now? Having faced Weidman, he's beating a lot of guys in middleweight as it stands right now. So maybe he fights Chris Weidman. Whoever wins between him and Chris Weidman gets the next title shot. Like that was actually going to be my um. That nature. That was actually going to be my next question. What do you really do with the top of that group? I think Kelvin Gaslam is the only new name that's there. Weidman's coming back. Who do you match up with whom to kind of clear up some space in that group? Yeah, so I'm saying. So I'm like, who else do you match up with whom to to try to clear up some some space in there? Do you do? Is Weidman considered the 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 top contender when he returns, or do you think that the winner of Rockhold and uh, Romero should immediately fight? Whitaker for the title. How do you kind of sort this whole group out? I'd probably say whoever wins between between uh, Rockhold and um, and Romero, because if Rockhold beats Romero, he will have won two in a row. And Romero was on a win streak before he lost to Whitaker. Out of his last five, six fights, maybe seven fights, he'd only lost one fight, and that'd have been to Whitaker. Rockhold lost to Weidman, the champion, and then prior to that, he was on like a four or five win win streak. So it'll be two guys with, who who've been who've been fairly active, made a definite impression in the middleweight division, and are the two best athletes in there. So, I mean, who else? I mean, once again, who else? Who else is in, in a better position to demand a title fight? 
I mean, I'm not giving Kelvin Gastelum one off of knocking out Michael Bisping and beating up Vitor Belfort and Tim Kennedy. That didn't impress me. I'm not giving Chris Weidman one over beating Kelvin Gastelum. They got to show me a little, a little bit more. And I'm not giving Jacare one over beating Derek Brunson, just like I wouldn't give Derek Brunson a fight after beating, if he would have beat Jacare. He hadn't done enough to warrant him getting a rematch with the champion or being in the, in the mix for an interim title shot. Only two options you have is Rockhold and Romero. Even if the fight's closed, if it's ugly, doesn't matter. They're the only, they're the best two options in division. Just face Whit Whitaker for the undisputed title. Nobody else has done enough in, in the past year and a half to make an argument. So since we've been talking about the fact that, that this division doesn't have a lot of depth, is there anyone at 185 that you're keeping a close eye on that you think could kind of burst through the top? We see a lot of guys at welterweight and down. Um, we see a lot of new contenders kind of rising to the crop. But at 185, who's someone that you, everyone may not have an eye on that you think can kind of rise up out of this group? Um, I think, is it Anthony Smith, I think? I think it's Anthony Smith, if I recall correctly. He's the only guy who thinks so, because he's been fighting a lot of the, the third and second tier guys. He's been beating up those guys, and now he, he seems like he's a good. The only thing now you have to do is have him face a name guy and see what he can do when the level of opposition goes up. That's about the only guy I can think of right now who who the book on him isn't already written. Because there's lots of other guys who can fight in middleweight, but the book on them is kind of written. You know, Tim Boach, he's, he's a very good fighter. Book on him has been kind of written. Chris Weidman, book on him has been kind of written. Derek Brunson, book on him has been kind of written. So we need somebody. So I'm going with Smith because he's still up and coming. He's still developing, and he's still at a point where he could, even if he suffers a big loss, he could still turn it around and reinvent himself in the near future and put himself in position for a title fight again. Okay. All right, good. I'll definitely take that there. Let's talk about the co-main event where Andre Touchy-Feely and Dennis Bermudez had a very good fight. It was, I think it was, it was a lot of good action back and forth where we saw Feely get the split decision victory. And a lot of people were arguing about it right, right where I was watching. I was watching at, at Fight Metric, and there was a lot of um, conversation about it there. What are your thoughts about what you saw? A, did you agree with the decision? And uh, let's and break down what both men did, and who did you have uh, winning the fight? Um, I really, I really thought the decision could have gone either way. I thought Feely did enough to win it in the judges' eyes because, I mean, the the fact that he was able to take down. He was able to take down Bermudez repeatedly, and he was able to defend Bermudez's takedown repeatedly. I think Bermudez was like 1 of 11 or 2 of 11. I mean, even though he didn't do a lot with the takedowns, the fact of the matter is, I think a lot of judges and people come in expecting certain things of certain fighters. And a judge who knows anything of Bermudez's skill set knows that he's a power wrestler, he can get takedowns, he can control guys, he's hard to take down, and he can get the takedown. Feely defending the takedown, and getting the takedown, essentially, to a lot of people, would make the impression that he had the control, that he was in control of the fight because he was controlling where it went and where it didn't go. The fight was on the feet because he wanted it to be on the feet, and when he didn't want it to be on the feet, it was on the ground. I'm not even saying he did a lot to Bermudez on the, on the ground, but the fact of the matter is he took him down repeatedly, and for a period of time he had him controlled. Bermudez was not able to do that nearly as consistently, and that puts an impression on the, that puts an impression on the judges and show is thinking that this guy is physically controlling the fight. And um, I really think I really think that Team Alpha Male had him had Feely very well prepared for this because he he had Bermudez figured out. Nothing Bermudez was doing was working 
on a technical level. He, he had answers for it. He knew it was coming. He was able to defend it. He was able to counter it. The only reason Bermuda's really had success is because he's a much, much, much better athlete than Andre Feely. Andre Feely is a pretty good athlete in a, in a camp full of very good athletes. Bermuda's is a little bit better of an athlete and that difference in power and explosiveness and uh, mobility is what actually allowed him to be successful in striking exchanges and the one time he was able to take him down. It wasn't so much that he had done something different or something original. He was just, I mean, I mean you know, as a person who's trained, when you face, if you're facing a dynamic athlete, you might be ro rolling with a blue belt, but if he's a blue belt who's a division one level football player athlete, that person's gonna be hard to deal with, even if you're, even if you know everything he's doing because of the huge advantage he has in explosiveness and balance and size and endurance. That's basically what allowed Bermudez to have his moments of success in the fight because he hits so much harder, because he's so much more explosive, because he's so much faster. So it looked like he had turned the fight around and figured out Feely, but he didn't really figure out Andre Feely. He was doing the same thing he'd always done, but Feely, as he got tired, and the fight kind of went the rounds, wasn't able to physically match up as well with Bermudez. But technically, Bermudez wasn't really doing anything special that, that, that would allow me to have a legitimate argument that says he won the fight clearly. I can see how somebody would go for him, I can see how people went for Feely, but I don't, I don't think either one of them did anything to stand out, but if I, anybody, I was gonna give it to anybody, it's the fact that Feely was able to take him down repeatedly and control him so well and defend his takedown essentially was enough for me as far as the judges going because once again Bermudez did some damage on the feet but it wasn't because he was doing anything so technically aware he was being so defensively sound he was just about he was out athleting him he wasn't doing anything technically that stood out that drew my eye to it that said oh he's figured him out he's got his number Feely had Bermudez figured out from round one to round three and he basically his lack of athleticism is what allowed Dennis Bermudez to come back into the fight so, looking at Feely's and Bermudez's recent track record, what do you do with both of these guys here? Feely, has had, Feely was someone that was kind of tabbed as a prospect to watch, but then he had a moment where he was struggling uh, with some wins and losses there. And Bermudez, man, Bermudez was on a hell of a run. A lot of people even thought that he would be the guy to beat Conor McGregor at 145. But then he ran into his own issues. Looking at both of these guys there, where do you pick them in the uh, featherweight group, and what do you think you would do with them next? Well, the problem with Feely is he's got two other people from his own camp who are, who are now in the top 10. So depending on how their careers move forward, he's not going to have very much of a shot at getting to 145 because one of the guys in his division, his own camp is going to be ahead of him. At 145? The other issue for Feely is he's not a, he's not a tier, a top tier athlete. And he's, it's kind of like a, a lesser version of with, Roy, with the issue with Roy McDonald, where except Feely doesn't have Roy McDonald's savviness. He doesn't have his situational awareness. He doesn't have his all-round skill set. But essentially, Feely's a gritty, tough, active, durable fighter who uses those attributes to carry him in light of the fact that he's not a top-end technician, and especially in light of the fact that he's not a top-end athlete, whether it's durability, pop punching power, or explosiveness. So once he starts facing the elite guys, that lack of athleticism and that lack of durability is going to constantly run him into the wall. Just like how um, Darren Elkins came back from the punishment Michael Johnson was putting on him, Andre Feely doesn't come back from that. Just like um, Darren Elkins came back when Bechtick was beating him up, Andre Feely does not come back from that. He doesn't have the durability he does, and he doesn't have the athletic ability as far as punching power and speed to just turn the fight around at a minute's notice. He can grind out wins. 
but with his lack of durability and his lack of athleticism and technical skill, he could be winning a fight up until the point he's just losing it. And once it turns, once the fight turns for him, it's very hard for him to turn the fight back around. He has to maintain a certain amount of control to survive because he doesn't have that equalizer, which would be athletic ability, nor does he have the equalizer of superior technique. So you can match him with another guy who's higher up, but he's, he's going to be a tough out, but he's, not a, he's, he's been proven to be less than elite. So a lot of guys aren't going to want to fight him because it doesn't do much for them. It doesn't do much for a guy in the top five, top seven. Now guys who are just below that might be used against him, might want to fight him and take the shine off this win and build themselves up to the next level like uh, Bektik. You could put Bek you could put Feeling with Bektik because he just came off a, pretty, a fairly big win. Bektik just came off a win and now you can have them match up and move to the next level. Hold on one second. So you could, that's what I would, that's what I would do with Feely. I'd have him face uh, Bektik next. As far as Bermudez, I don't know what to make of that guy because um, it seems like it seems like he's been figured out, and he's he doesn't he just doesn't fight very smart. He doesn't fight in a very efficient manner, and now that his physical skills are starting to decline a little bit, there's just not very much he can do. Um, everybody knows what he's going to do. They know how he's going to do it, and he's constantly paying the price for that in every single fight he's been in. He hasn't looked very good. He didn't look good against Elkins. He looked like he got physically dominated and beat up against the Korean Zombie. He was countered and knocked out by a guy who hadn't fought in, what, a year, two years, three years? And then now against Feely, against a guy who's got less legitimate all-around skills, a guy who's a worse athlete, and a guy who, who hasn't competed at the level he has, he got, he basically got out-game-planned out and outworked to a decision loss. So I, I don't know what to make of Bermudez. I mean, once again, I think he's gonna end up turning into a guy who's a name that they build other fighters off of because he has, he hasn't shown that he can compete in the elite level anymore. But he, at one point he was elite, and now he's just, he doesn't know how to get back there or to maintain that. Oops, well, it looks like Schwan got kicked out for a second. I think he was having some fire drill issues, as you definitely heard on his end, let me uh, get him back in the show again. Yeah, man, sometimes you never know what happens here live on the MMA Ratings Podcast, but with that in mind, you know, we'll just keep on going and talk about UFC Fight Night 125 coming up, where this weekend we have Leoto Machida fighting, I guess, uh, let's hold on one second. Shawan back in, I apologize for this. Guys, uh, there you go, Swan. I just recently you the invite, so I hope you're there. But um, we're going to move on, and we're going to talk about this weekend's card where we have Leota Machida fighting against Eric Anders. 10-0 Eric Anders, former uh, Alabama football player. Uh, turn me down a little bit on your end, fighting a former uh, UFC champion in Leota Machida and also a former title contender as well. You know, he um, challenged at 185. What are some of your thoughts about this fight here? Is this a is this a go-home fight for Machida or are we about to see a breakout victory here for um, Eric Anders? I'd probably have to lean towards a breakout fight for Anders. My biggest concern with Machida is he just doesn't seem to be able to take a shot anymore. I mean, when I saw him fighting Derek Brunson, he was actually outlanding Brunson on the feet. He kind of looked like he had figured out his timing. But the minute Brunson, Brunson landed flush, that was it. 
I know Brunson's a very big hitter, but Machida's never been the toughest guy in the first place. He's never been the most durable fighter in the first place. And at this stage, being inactive, being older, his reflexes not being the way they, they, they used to be, and the fact that he still used that karate style to kind of guarantee that he's going to take a certain amount of flesh shot, I don't, I don't know that he can handle anything. He take, I don't, I, if a guy comes out and jumps on him and forces him to fight, I don't know that Fieto can take one, two, three, or four hard shots before he's done for the night. If he can't, if you could guarantee me he can handle the power, I'd say Lieto because he has a, he has a savvy, he has the experience to kind of eke out a five-round win. But I don't have any faith in his ability to take punishment anymore, nor do I have any faith in his ability to hit with enough power to scare off a younger, more durable, fresher, and more athletic fighter. So let me ask you this. Everything that you described about you know, the issues that you see within Machida's game right now, is Anders a fighter to take advantage of that? You know, because he has not... He hasn't fought anyone of this level yet. I mean, the biggest name he's probably fought to date was Rafael Natal, who he knocked out uh, last year. I think he's actually the guy who retired um, Natal. This is his third UFC fight. So looking at who he is, do you think he's the type of fighter that can take advantage of what you just mentioned when it comes to Machida's um, decline? Well, technically, I don't think Anders brings anything that's so unique or so so refined that he could necessarily out game plan and out strategize and, and basically take Machida apart. But the fact of the matter is, Machida just doesn't seem to be able to take any sort of punishment. I mean, Machida's been lighting up a lot of guys on feet. When he fought Rockhold, he was he was scoring on the feet. When he fought Romero, he was scoring on the feet. When he fought Brunson, he was scoring on the feet. But as soon as those guys put any sort of heavy leather on him, the fight turned and he wasn't able to recover. Machida's never been that kind of guy who can take a lot of punishment and work his way back in the fight. I don't know the fight I've seen Machida take punishment and turn around and win the fight. But I guess the closest thing you have is when he fought Shogun the first time. But even a lot of people thought Shogun won the first fight and then Shogun knocked him out in the second. You know, when he fought John Jones. John Jones had the skills, but his physicality was such a problem for him. When he fought Romero, it's that athleticism, that physicality that was such a problem for him. When he fought Rockhold, Rockhold isn't the greatest wrestler in the world, but Rockhold was able to take him down and physically dominate him in a way that Machida just wasn't prepared for. And even the same thing when he fought Brunson. We've seen that Brunson is a very wild, very uneven fighter, a guy who can't stick to a game plan or adjust a game plan. And he, he landed one shot, and it was over. And Anders is, a, in my opinion, a better athlete than Brunson. And he's, he's a, a dynamic, fast, and strong, and explosive athlete. Now, like I said before, Machida is very capable of outclassing him on the feet and outsmarting him. But you've got to convince me that over five rounds, at no point, Anders is not going to land some kind of big, powerful shot. Now, it's likely, it's likely, it's possible that Machida can just pick away at him, and peck away at him, and dance around, maybe even get a, maybe, maybe even walk him into a counter and knock him out. But it'd be hard for me to really support Machida because his chin has just been so unreliable. I mean, he, he got stopped by Romero, he got stopped by Luke Rockhold, he got stopped by Derek Brunson. You know, I think his last three losses. He's lost, he's lost like four in a row, and three of them he's been stopped. He's been stopped in a dynamic fashion. So even though Anders doesn't have the seasoning, the savvy, or the technical skills, which is say he should be a challenge to Machida, Machida's not as fast as he used to be. He's not as elusive as he used to be. He doesn't take a shot as well as he used to, and he never took a shot very well. He gets a big, strong, fast, aggressive guy who's coming for him, looking for a chance to make his name. I mean, it just, 
it just lines up to Nishida having a very long night. Now, once again, I'll say this once again, he does have the skills and the savvy to navigate it, but it's hard to bet on the guy whose chin is just so unreliable. It's getting to the point now where I see a Nishida fight, and I'm just hoping he doesn't get hit so he can make it through the fight. It got the same way to be with uh, Anderson Silva. He just gets so concerned for their well-being because they've been knocked out or beat up so much that you don't, you're afraid for the first time they get hit clean because you don't know they can handle it. And I, I don't know that Machida can take a good shot, and I don't know that he can recover for one, even against guys with experience standard. That's some good analysis there, man. Some good analysis there. Is Anders an individual that you can put trust in and see him as a next star, or do you think he is closer to his ceiling than a lot of people think? I hear a lot of good commentary about him, and, I, and, I, and I'm not going to lie. I am interested in seeing his seeing him fight, but do you think he is a guy who um, – is the next big star as he's kind of being classified. Well, the thing about it is, it just depends. I, I'm not sure how good his camps overall because we haven't seen him against top-end guys. But the fact of the matter is he seems to be smart. He seems to be a guy who can think in there. He's shown some poise and some maturity in the cage, even under duress. But basically, if he's willing to expand his skill set and he's working on a day-to-day -day basis on layering his skills and adding that sense of nuance, he'll be fine because he has all the physical tools. I mean, just like Ovain St. Preux could have been a top guy because he had that top-end athleticism, he just kind of plateaued as far as his, his, his technical skills and his coaching. At one point, they were able to add something to him. Recently, they have not been able to. If Anders can avoid that and he can keep developing, I don't see how he wouldn't be a force in the division. And the fact that he's a young guy, he's a young guy with a name and he's got an exciting style, it's very likely that he could, he could become somebody who's a star if not the face of the division. They're looking for new guys to come and take over. It's just nine times out of 10, the division has been filled with older guys. And they're guys who are you know, on their decline. They, but the young guys, just like a light heavyweight, aren't putting these guys away. This would be the first step to showing that he could be a young guy who can put the old guy away. And that would kind of make his name. I mean, this, this fight is kind of set up for Anders to win. Machine is not as elusive as he used to be. He's coming off a brutal knockout. I mean, that fight was, what, a couple months ago? Two, three months ago? And the Anders fight? Or no, Machida? Machida got knocked out by Brunson. Uh, October. I mean, he's... Yeah, he's on a three-fight losing streak. All three were by finish. So, I mean, it, in a sense, if you think about it, if you think about it in a kind of weird way, it seems like they're setting Machida up to lose. Like, they expect Anders to win. They expect Machida to lose. And they're putting him in with their young gun hoping that he can get the job done. They're, this is kind of like a, a showcase fight. And Machida's basically, being, in my opinion, he's being sacrificed to hopefully put Andrews over. And if he can win and beat a young guy, then they can, they can continue with the Machida story and talk about how the Dragons have been reborn. But it really seems like they're putting their, hedging their bets on the side of Andrews. Okay, okay. Um... I'm actually, like I said, like I mentioned, I am very interested in, in seeing Anders' next uh, fight and seeing how well he does. We have a co-main event with John Dotson and Pedro Munoz. Uh, let's talk about this fight here because uh, Munoz is someone who has been considered like a surging prospect. He's on a four-fight winning streak. He's only lost twice in the UFC, one to Jimmy Rivera, the other Rafael Sunstyle, two very tough guys at 135. How do you see this fight playing out for both men? Um, in Dodson should win, and he should win impressively. Um, his opponent isn't he's, – he's got some athleticism. He's got some offensive and defensive skills, but he's not as 
experience, he's not as developed, he's not as defensively responsible or offensively skilled as the guys that um, Dodson's last lost to, or even the guys he's beaten. He's not a, he's not on Eddie Wineland's level. He's not on a, uh, he's not a John Lineker type as far as durability, punching power, or, or overall athleticism. Dodson should have the experience in every aspect of this fight. He, he should be the better athlete. He should be the bigger hitter. Based on who he's fought, he should have the better chin. And he should have the better camp and the better better all-round skill set or the ability to apply that skill set. This should be a win for John Dodson. The problem with John Dodson is we never know what we're going to get for him. Is he going to come out there and do a whole lot in the first round and then get tired and just stare at his guy for the next couple rounds on the way to the city launch? Is he going to be super on his toes, bouncing, countering heavily, throwing the full array of elbow strikes, short punches, counter punches, leads, body kicks and leg kicks? Or is he going to be the John Dodson who just, you know, comes out and basically from round one to round three? We, you never know what to expect from Dodson because you never know what mindset he's in or what mindset he's going to be in once the fight gets to a certain point. But if I have to go on skills, accomplishments, and quality of opposition, I'm going to say Dodson wins. I mean, he can win a decision. I, I think he'd prefer to win by knockout, but I'll say he wins by decision. Do you think Dawson ever gets to a title shot at 135? Uh, he can't be too far off from one, to be quite honest. I mean, the vision's got some excitement in it, but he does have a storyline having knocked out the champion at that weight class because he dropped down to fight to join the weight class, the flyweight weight class to fight Demetrius. So he does he can't say I beat the champ and I beat him at his at his at his weight class. So there's a storyline behind that. Um, he he probably needs to put. The hard part is he's, he's lost big-name fights to guys, and so he's, he's going to have to be someone pretty high up, like a, um, a Sun Tao maybe, to really consider himself in the mix as far as the title fight. He's already lost, he already lost to, uh, who Marlon Moraes? He lost to Marlon, yeah. Yeah, he lost to him. That would have been, been a great win for him to put him right in position, but he lost, already lost to Marlon Moraes. So he'd have to be someone like a Sun Sal, because I know Rivera is not going to fight him. Um, Cody Garbrandt has no reason to fight him, even if he wins at this point. He'd have to be for him to be put in position. I think the only other person there for him would be beating a Hapiel or Sun Sal. That's the only way he gets in position. If he loses this fight, it's going to take him three or four fights minimum to get back in position. But if he wins this fight and he can beat someone like in a Sun Sal, he'd be within a stone throw title fight. Interesting there. Yeah, I'm, I'm always um, interested in seeing if he can ever get back to that point where he is in the conversation for um, the bantamweight title just simply because he does have that win over uh, TJ Dillashaw. The last fight on this card I wanted to talk about was uh, Valentina Shevchenko and, and oh, what's her name? I just had it on top of my tongue. Let me look. Uh, Kasha Hera. At 125, this is um, their debut, Kasha Harris, uh debut in the organization, and Shevchenko's debut at 125. I looked at this fight earlier today, and I'm like, yeah, this is definitely a number one contenders fight for Shevchenko, at least. But looking at these two women, what do you see uh, going down on Saturday? Um, I don't know a whole lot about the other girl. I've seen a couple of her fights. The thing about it is she hasn't fought anybody of this caliber, whether it's athletic ability, experience, or skill set. She's kind of like a, uh, like Irene, I think it was Irene Pacheco, who was brought into the UFC years ago. 
a person who's made some noise in smaller promotions but hasn't really faced seasoned fighters, experienced fighters, skilled fighters, or particularly talented fighters. This is like a huge jump up for her. And essentially, this is a fight they expect Valentina to win because you know, the UFC seems to have some plans for Valentina. They seem to believe in her. And this is a fight that's being put out there for her to dominate, if not have a highlight real finish. It's going to create interest in her becoming the flyweight champion. That's, that's the, the impression I have. They want her, they want the belt around her, or they at least want her in a title fight. And um, I don't know, I don't know the, I've heard rumors from people that a lot of people turn this fight down against Valentina, and I don't know if that's true or not, but it's clear the UFC has plans for her in flyweight, and they're hoping that she wins this fight in devastating fashion and start setting the table for her to move up, move through the ranks, and get a title shot versus the champion. Uh, yeah, I mean, Montagna's dealing with injury right now. You have not heard about her at all. I mean, you haven't seen her at any events. I wonder if she's going to be at this event on Saturday, but you have not seen her face or heard about her the in any shape or form. The last time I heard someone talk about Montagna is when we had Arlene Sanchez on the show. Yeah, like then that's it. Honest, I'm, I'm, not even, I'm not even trying to push our show forward, but the last time I've heard anybody spend more than two seconds talking about her was on our show when we had her coach on. Exactly, and I mean it. It makes it show. It's, there's some concern in that for me because it's like, well, how much is not Bellator? Excuse me. How how much is UFC pushing her forward, and what would the conversation be when she does come back? So that's that's. You know, and, and let me make one point. We have all these big show, big news media sites, MMA sites, going through ESPN, Fox. They have their own sites, all, their own shows, and I listen to a lot of podcasts because I'm a fan of mixed martial arts. I like to get different perspectives on stuff. I hardly hear anybody talk. I mean, you're a newly formed champion with her backstory, beating the people she bought, beat on the way to the title. I don't understand how her or her coaching staff isn't on doing the, you know, the regular round of shows when Rose Namajunas won. Trevor Whitman did the, you know, the victory lap. Pat, Pat uh, Barry was on it. Rose Namajunas was doing it. Same thing when TJ Dillashaw got his title. When everybody wins a title or you have a big win like this, you're on the circuit. You go to do the interviews. They have you on the show. They have the articles. I haven't seen any articles on on Montagna or her camp since she's really won. I mean, after about a week, nobody seemed to care. That's that's kind of a that's kind of an issue. I mean, you have a new champion. You would think you'd be highlighting them, and, and the media would be highlighting them. And neither the UFC nor the actual MMA media that accuses the UFC of not pushing people have seen to have an interest in her or her camp getting any sort of notoriety. They're more interested about all the other people who are coming into flyweight, which is a little bit hypocritical for them to say that, hey, you're not pushing these people. Well, you have some power over that. You're in the media. You can push them too. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, again, like as I, as I said, I'm not surprised that her name hasn't really been brought up. It'll be interesting to see when we do see her next. Who, who is her number one contender? Who is the next the woman she ends up facing? I think it'll be uh, Valentina. I don't even think that they were going to give Paige the fight if uh, Shef Shevchenko wins. But we'll just see what happens, man, because it's really awkward that we have not heard anything about her in any shape or form. Um, so before we close out today, uh, let's, as always, Schwann, uh what are you working on this week, man? I know you've come up with some good stuff in the past couple of weeks. So let us know what you're working on, not only for our ratings, but for the rest of your combat sports coverage. Uh, well, for combatpress.com, I did an article called The Problem with Paige, and I kind of take a look at the errors that she's made or that her camps made in regards to her technique 
and her strategy and how she approaches fights and how that's been a direct correlation between the current losing streak she's at and how it's going to affect her career moving forward if she doesn't make some changes. For MMA ratings, I actually did a fight, uh, article talking about corners and camps, and I used Justine Keish and Francis Ngannou as the subjects as examples of how important a camp, a good camp and a good corner as far as preparation direction can be in regards to how the fight goes and your potential for winning or losing a fight based on what the camp is telling you or how you're receiving what they're giving you and how they prepared you for a fight. Because I think a lot of people will just see the final product and say, oh, and Johnny was overrated or Kish was robbed or whatever fighter, Dillashaw was this or Cody Garbrandt is that. Even though MMA and combat sports are a one-on-one -on -one sport, the fact of the matter is multiple people are involved in making that person win or lose. So while we just say this fighter has bad IQ, this fighter was out of shape, well, he comes from a professional camp who he pays money. Why, is, why, why isn't he in shape? Or he comes from a professional camp, why doesn't he know how to do certain defenses or counters? Or why doesn't he know how to grapple? How come he can't get out of an armbar? Why can't he flip a jab? Why are they doing the dumbest thing possible in the, at the worst time in the most important fight of their career? That's not just all on the fighter. Some of it is, but a lot of it is also on the camp who has been charged with preparing them mentally and physically to compete. And if those things aren't in line, the product that we've seen repeatedly, repeatedly, if those things aren't in line, then the product you get from the fighter is never as good as it should be. Yeah, man, I definitely agree with you there. I'm, I'm all, as always, and I'm looking forward to your work, man. I'll give you a read and a shout out as soon as I see it, man. So, as, as always, appreciate what you're doing for us and the combat sports world in general. Thank you very much, sir. I and as you do. Uh, I, yeah, I, seriously. <laughs> Somebody got to do it, and it ain't me. But um, as always, and I'm covering professional wrestling, MMA, uh, grappling as well. Got a big, got a big weekend of grappling going on. This weekend uh, in February is going to be crazy busy because there's something major going on just about every weekend. So we got that stuff. But yeah, man, just another day in the week, just another weekend in, in the month. You know how it goes. Hey, before we go, let me ask you one question. And, and I'm, I'm going to have to watch these events again just to make sure. But isn't it odd how in the and I hate to bring this up because it seems like I'm being so petty. But isn't it odd that in the flyweight fights they had, I don't remember them ever mentioning the actual champion of the division. Nope. When do they ever do that? If, if you know, fight Rose Namunas, T.J. Dillashaw, uh, the champ, Mighty Mouse, potential, you know, she's a champion, and no one mentions her in the fights in her new brand new division. Like nobody said her name in relation to it. Like, oh hey, uh, Caitlin Chukagan looks really good. She might be a potential contender. Jessica I looks really good. She could be a potential pretender. Jess Jesse Clark's won two fights in the row. She she's a, she's a fight away from fighting Montagna for the belt. Nobody's ever saying that. They're talking about everybody else and everybody else's story except the champion. Have you ever seen that before? I've never seen it before. I haven't, man. I think it's going to be um, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's just something I've noticed. When Arlene was telling us that uh, they don't get their props and they really are overlooked and pushed to the back, some people would say she's being a little bitter or she's being paranoid. But when you look at the lack of coverage for the first champion in a brand new division of a major organization and they're not even mentioned, I don't know, man. There might be some truth to what she's saying. I, I definitely agree. Anything, but there, there might be. I definitely agree, man. Like I said, the way, the way Montano is being, being treated, it does, does not seem right to me in, in any shape or form. Yeah. 
as long as it's just not me, I started to feel crazy for a second because I looked at those interviews and articles and I'm like, when's the last time I've heard her name and it hasn't come from our show? Oh, I haven't. Okay. It's kind of an issue. Kind of an issue there, sir. So as always, man, thanks again for doing all you do. And we'll be back next week for episode 74 of the MMA Ratings Podcast, man. We're all said and done. Thank you again, sir, and have a great night. You too. Stay safe. Have a good one.